The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Reading this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Chad Middlebrooks. I'm one of the other pastors here, and I add my welcome to Frank's. It's good to be with you opening God's Word together. Uh, If you were with us back in the summer, and you can remember that far back, we began studying the book of Deuteronomy. And the pastors decided that, Lord willing, we would study the book of Deuteronomy along with the Gospel of Luke intermittently in chunks over the next couple of years. And one of the reasons we decided to study the book of Deuteronomy is that it's a generational guidebook for spiritual renewal. And you'll remember back in the fall of 2021, we launched our Renew campaign as we're seeking the Lord to bring renewal, not only in our physical space, as we can well see has begun, but more importantly, spiritual renewal inside of our hearts. And so we, like the people of Israel, can learn what it means to seek the face of the Lord as we follow his leading. And so this morning, we return back to the book of Deuteronomy. And just by way of reminder for some of us or for visitors, just a a quick recap of where we are. The second generation of Israel, God's people, his chosen people, are on the plains of Moab. They're awaiting to enter into the promised land that God is giving them. The first generation, their parents had been given the law, but they didn't heed that law and obey God, and so they, are, they forfeited that blessing to enter into the promised land. And so most of them died wandering around in the wilderness during the 40-year wandering. And so Moses is calling this next generation, challenging them to lay hold and seize what God is laying before them as they enter into this land. And Moses preaches three sermons here in the book of Deuteronomy. The first sermon, as we've already studied, chapters one through four, Moses calls the people to look back and to learn from what their parents, their failures, and what they didn't do. And then here in this next sermon, beginning in chapter five, as we'll see this morning, going through chapter 26, Moses will call the people to covenant loyalty through listening and obeying the instructions of God's law as they enter into this land. And so with that introduction, let's pray. Let's go before the Lord, ask him, to bless our time as we come to his word. Would you pray together? Father, it truly is astounding that you would send your son to this earth to die in the place of sinners, that we might gain the Father's amazing, steadfast love. How can it be that you would have this kind of love for us, 
and continue to pursue us in grace. Father, would you grow our understanding of your love for us this morning as we open your word now? Might we be more assured of the righteousness that you have clothed us in through your son, Lord Jesus? Pray that you would do this for our good and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's the start of a new year, which means that many of us are hoping to create new rhythms, new habits in our lives. And for some of us, if you're like me, you're hoping to maybe start exercising a little more, get back into shape. This past week, I saw a video on YouTube of people in gyms using exercise equipment wrongly. And so, that, for example, one of the guys was using a bench press machine, but he was using his legs to exercise his legs with it. Another was using a, a curl bar to use their neck to strengthen their neck muscles. And as you can imagine, some of these people had unfortunate mishaps by using this equipment in the ways that it was not intended to be used. But nevertheless, it was a very entertaining video, if I might add. But similarly, when we come to God's law here this morning, as we begin to look at the Ten Commandments, we can interpret and wrongly use God's law in ways that it was not intended to be used. Just as intended benefits from exercise result from proper use of exercise equipment, so God's law, properly understood and applied to our lives, actually leads us to a life of flourishing the way that God intends. But otherwise, if we misuse his law, it can lead to our detriment, to our destruction. Now this morning, we begin looking at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, as Moses gives a second reading of God's law to this next generation, which is what Deuteronomy means, second reading of the law. And so this text that we have this morning is the preface to the law. And what we'll learn from this passage is that as God's covenant people go into the promised land, Moses reminds them of three very important realities related to God's law. In verses one through three, he reminds them of the continuity of the law. And then in verses four through five, he reminds them of the personal nature of God's law. And then finally, in verse six, he reminds them of the redemptive foundation of God's law. So Moses gathers the second generation of Israelites together and he says to them, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. You shall learn them and be careful to do them. Notice that Moses gives a three-pronged command in that first verse before he reads the law. He says, hear these rules, these commands that I'm about to read to you. But don't stop there. Learn from these commands that I am giving you now. And don't even stop there, but continue to apply these commands and these rules to your lives so that you might experience the Lord's benefit and blessing. We'll come back to this a little bit later, but it's important to note that the word here is in the singular imperative. Now, why is that important? Well, Moses goes on in verses two and three to say, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, we all who are here alive today. Now, we know that the second generation that Moses is speaking to here was not even alive when the law was given to the Israelites, the first generation at the mountain, at Sinai, at Horeb. So why does Moses say that the covenant wasn't with their fathers, but was with them, the second generation? Well, Moses is not saying that the first generation didn't make covenant with God. He's speaking rhetorically to show that the covenant, which was made with their fathers, directly applies to the next generation. 
This next generation is just as much a partner in the covenant with God that he established at Sinai giving the Ten Commandments to their fathers. There's continuity between the generations making each successive generation just as equally bound to the covenant as the preceding one. See, the patriarchal fathers, they died without receiving the promises because of their disobedience. But the next generation is privileged to see the promised kingdom realized. This generation, though they were not at Sinai to receive the law from God, is as if they were because they are part of the covenant people of God. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, the entire Decalogue, all the Ten Commandments, are used as the intimate second person singular to underscore the covenantal oneness and corporate solidarity that exists with all of Israel. And this covenant oneness, it transcends time, it transcends generations, as we'll see. It wasn't just this event that happened with their parents in the first generation. This is why Moses uses seven expressions in verse three alone to show this oneness and this corporate solidarity. He says, with us, we, these here today, all of us, to stress the continuity of the covenant to this next generation. There's unity that Israel enjoys and that unity is a gift that is given by God. There's one God who by this unique agreement that he made with Israel to make them his treasured possession and he formed them into one nation and he's giving them one set of laws and commands to rule them as his people. His people are bound together to him but also bound to one another as well. Now, if you enjoy watching college football, maybe you've enjoyed the many bowl games that have been on the last couple of weeks, but there's a growing trend in college football for players to opt out and just not to play in the final bowl game with their teammates. In the majority of these cases, the reasons are self-serving. It's not for the betterment of the team. It's for their own, uh, what they want to do for themselves, whether it's to preserve not getting hurt or to help them and prepare for the NFL draft. But Israel, as God's chosen people, didn't have the option to opt out. They made a covenant. They vowed before God that they would be set apart. They would be a different people, different from the world around them as they entered into this land that God was giving them. And in the ancient Near East, each successive generation must subscribe to the covenant. And so what we're seeing here and reading here is a covenant renewal between Yahweh and Israel. But this covenant is not with equal parties. This covenant bears the marks of what's known as a suzerain vassal treaty, which was a common treaty during that day. The suzerain, who was the the powerful ruler, would promise blessings of protection and of of, of blessing to his people, the vassal, the lesser nation that he conquered, if they would respond with obedience to them. But if they didn't, if they respond with disobedience, they would respond with curses to them. And so in verse two, what we have is the suzerain being uh, shown his majesty and his, the glory of God, this powerful one who has now come into an agreement with a lesser nation, as it were, Israel, his covenant people, bearing a similarity to this suzerain vassal treaty. And so Moses holds out to this second generation as they stand on the cusp of entering this glorious land that God's offer is still on the table, that they would lay hold and live out the way that God is calling them to live. In essence, God's saying to them, look, I wanna take you into this land 
flowing with milk and honey and you're gonna inhabit it permanently. And I'm gonna show you how to live in this land so that you might enjoy my rich blessings. See, God is giving his people, as it were, a constitution of how to live in the land. And the continuity of the law is important, not only for this second generation to see that the law resides that presides directly with them, but also to you and I thousands of years later to see that God's law has a place in our own lives. Because every person included in the covenant, whether Old Testament or New Testament times, is directly confronted with the reality of God's law. It transcends generations. Yahweh, the living God, over all of creation who stands outside of time, His law applies to his chosen people in all places throughout all generations. And so as we begin our study of the Ten Commandments over the next many weeks, let me ask us to begin to think about this question. What is my view of the Ten Commandments and how do they apply to my daily life? See, as God's covenant people go into the promised land, they're not only to be reminded of the law's continuity, but also the personal nature of his law. Verse 4, Moses says to the people, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. Now obviously this is not to be taken literally because as we've said, this next generation was not around. They were not at the mountain when the law was given to the first generation. But also, God didn't show himself in physical form as he spoke to his people either. It's clear from Deuteronomy 4 that we studied many months ago that God's people heard his voice. They didn't see a form, a physical form of God. Moses is using an idiom here to indicate with the great intimacy and to highlight the fact that God spoke directly to his people when he gave them the Ten Commandments. But in verse 5, as it tells us, the people were scared to death. They were terrified of the consuming flames. They didn't want to ascend the mountain. So Moses goes as the mediator between God and his people to be the mouthpiece of God. But even as Moses, being the mediator for God's people, they experience a very powerful, very real, direct, personal encounter with the living God. They got a sense of his greatness, of his transcendence, his holiness, his uniqueness. And this suzerain, this powerful one, was speaking to his vassal, and they were compelled to listen to him. See, the law that God was giving must be honored because of its origin, because of its source. It was coming directly from the mouth of God on high. And what we learn is that Yahweh is a living and communicating God. He's different from every other God because he not only communicates with his people, but he communicates in a way that his people can understand and learn. The content of what God speaks to his people, what it does is it reveals his character and reveals his heart. And so the law that God gives his people not only shows his people what he desires of them, but it also shows him what God is like. His commands speak to his honor, his worth, his majesty. His commands tell us what is important to the heart of God. And so therefore we cannot disdain the law of God without disrespecting the lawgiver as well. In our Advent series we just finished, and we were looking at the first chapter of Hebrews. And we saw there how God speaks to his children. The writer of Hebrews began his letter with these words. 
Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So just as the law reveals God's character, so the Son of God reveals what God the Father is like. As John writes in his gospel in chapter one, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God's directed speech to his beloved children climaxes in the incarnation of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. And for in the Son, Yahweh has personally entered into this world and spoken with precise clarity like never before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, the giving of the law shows that God is personally and intimately connected with His children. He cares about the details of his people's lives, which is precisely why he lays out these commands so that they will know how to live and honor him as they enter into the promised land. If you remember from chapter four, Moses implored the the people of Israel to keep God's commands so that they and their children would live long in the land and experience blessing. As a loving father, he knows what they're going to soon face as they get into the land. They're going to be tempted to worship other gods and have all kinds of of temptation that they'll face. And so he graciously gives them the pathway to a life of flourishing and a life of blessing. If you're a Christian, this means that we serve a God that we can actually be face-to-face with an intimate relational connection with our God. And because our God is relational, he will necessarily put boundaries in our lives for our good and for our flourishing. And despite what children often think of parents' motives, parents, we put all kinds of rules, all kinds of restrictions within our children's lives. Why? Because we deeply care for them and we deeply love them and we want what's best for them. For the believer in Christ, freedom doesn't mean an absence of commands and absence from rules. The Christian is to live under the authority of the one who made us and who loves us. Most of us have probably flown on an airplane before and we've all heard the announcement when you get up to about 30,000 feet or wherever the elevation is that your, uh, your altitude that you're reaching, the flight attendant comes on and says, you are now free to move about the cabin which means you can unbuckle your seatbelt, you can stand up if you want to and walk down the aisle, stretch your legs, use the restroom. But there's still restrictions within that freedom to walk around the plane, are there not? For example, you can't get up and freely go into the cockpit and talk with the captain and sit in his chair and hang out with him. Nor can you open the hatch and freely walk out at 30,000 feet. Those are healthy restrictions, right? You're free to move about but there are still restrictions in place. When our family, when we were out in Yellowstone this past summer, we didn't curse the guardrails that were up by us as we were looking at the hot springs that would kept us from falling into the hot springs to burning to death. No, we were grateful for those boundaries so that we could freely enjoy the hot springs. So in the same way, God gives his law as a guardrail to help us to live within the freedom that he is affording us. And since God is a personal God, There's a very personal nature to his law. It's given out of his goodness and out of his grace to us. But lastly, we learn of the redemptive foundation of God's law in verse six. 
This is very critical for us to understand as we go into studying the Ten Commandments here. Look at verse six here. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice that it is God's redemption of grace that is the foundation for the giving of the law. The divine indicative, what is true, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, that precedes the divine imperative. This is what you are now to do. Obey my commands. God is revealing that he has already graciously redeemed his people. And only after doing so does he give them these commands in light of being a redeemed people. In other words, the Ten Commandments are not instructions of how to break free from slavery under Pharaoh's uh, oppression. No, these commands are given to a freed people of how to live most freed in their new land that they're going into. See, as Christians, we, when we think of the Ten Commandments, we can often view them from one of two perspectives. In one way, we can view the Ten Commandments from a legalistic perspective, which is what I, growing up, viewed the Ten Commandments. Okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so I'll check these boxes and then I might earn God's love and his acceptance and be saved by him. But this is not what happens to the people of Israel. They're in oppression in Egypt under Pharaoh and they cry out to God. And God hears their cry. And he hears their cry, not because they have worth in and of themselves or because they are good, but because he loves them. And only after He saved them and freed them and forgiven them. Does he say, I'm gonna give you a new way to live now? The God who demands Israel's allegiance to his commandments is the same God who has provided for every one of their needs. Sinclair Ferguson in his work, The Whole Christ, which I highly commend to you, he writes and says this about legalism. Legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. See, salvation that has come through Christ isn't a reward of our obedience. Salvation in Christ is the reason for our obedience. We respond with obedience out of gratitude for what has been done for us that we did not deserve at the expense of the Lord Jesus. The law is never intended to function as a standard that we could meet or attain. The law is given to us to show the pervasiveness of our sin and the ugliness of it. This is what Paul talks about throughout the book of Romans and Romans chapter three specifically, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And now as good Reformed and Presbyterian brothers and sisters, probably none of us here this morning would say that our obedience earns us anything before God, but functionally, many of us are performing before God. We are checking moral boxes We're comparing ourselves with others as though we are proving our worth before a holy God. And viewing the law in this way distorts not only God's mercy and grace revealed in his law, but it fails to see the law within its proper context of redemptive history as an expression of God's gracious character. And so how might we be misapplying God's law, using it as a vehicle to try to earn God's acceptance? and his favor in our lives. Well, there's another view of the law that says that God's commands have no bearing on our lives. This is antinomianism, which is a fancy word that just means lawlessness. And again, Ferguson is helpful here. He says antinomianism, while the opposite error from legalism, is the equal error, for it similarly abstracts God's law from God's person and character. 
It fails to appreciate that the law that condemns us for our sins was given to teach us how not to sin. See, to disregard God's commands is to divorce his gracious acts of redemption from our only right response, which is humble obedience to his commands. So in what ways might we be disregarding God's law, thinking it has no bearing or relevance in our lives? Thankfully, there's a third way that is given, which is the antidote to both legalism and antinomianism. God knew that we as sinners needed someone to represent us before himself. And just as Moses was mediator for the people of God, so we have a greater and final mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, which Moses was foreshadowing. And as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8, Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. Jesus came to this earth under the law to fulfill the law perfectly where you and I fail. It is God's grace to us in Christ and our union with Jesus that is the only antidote to legalism, trying to earn our acceptance by obeying the law, and antinomianism, thinking the law has no bearing in our lives. And as Christ himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to what? Fulfill it. And if Christ didn't come to abolish the law, that means that the law has relevance in our lives even today. Because remember what Jesus said in John 15, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commands. Christ has done all the work necessary to free us from the bondage of our sin that once kept us enslaved so that we couldn't obey his commands freely. And so now that we're freed because of what Jesus has done at the cross, we can live as free sons and daughters unto the Lord in obedience. And so therefore, when we live in the presence of and in submission to Christ, the mediator who brings us face to face with the Father, then we will desire more and more to obey all of his commands in our lives. See, as we grow to understand that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, then we begin to realize and truly believe that his commands that he gives us are not to stifle our freedom, they're actually to provide for our freedom. Ferguson goes on and says, God's laws act as the railroad tracks on which the life empowered by the love of God poured into the heart by this Holy Spirit runs. See, it's God's love that powers the engine and it's his law that gives us the guardrail so that we go in the right direction. His commands are protective rather than simply being restrictive as they preserve our freedom that he's purchased for us. For those of us who are married, we took vows on our wedding day before God and before those in attendance. We said that we were gonna love our spouse for better or for worse in sickness and in health. Now, when your spouse gets sick or injured, do you think to yourself or dare say out loud, you mean I have to take care of you now? No. There's deep intimacy, connection. You want to serve your spouse. You want to take care of them because of your love for them. Well, likewise, because of all that Christ has done displaying his love and his commitment to us, our trust and our love of him must result in obedience out of all that he has done through Christ. See, in rightly understanding the law of God, I don't think anyone said it better than Puritan Sam Bolton. He said this, 
So the law sends us to the gospel to learn how to be saved because the law cannot save us. But then the gospel sends us back to the law to learn how to live. See, the law acts as a mirror to show us not only God's holiness, but also our sinfulness. But the law also acts as a curb in order to restrain evil in our lives. And furthermore, it acts as a guide to show us how to live God-honoring lives. And so if we want to know how to live the most fulfilled life imaginable, if we want to know what it looks like to love our families well, to love our neighbors, if we want to know how to, what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we have to look to the law of love given for our good and for our blessing. See, it's not enough to just hear God's truth. The first generation heard God's truth, but they didn't heed it and they forfeited God's blessing. You and I, we must learn his truth as we strive and strain by the Spirit's empowerment with every fiber of our being to obey his truth. Do we trust that Jesus knows what rules and commands make for a life of meaning and blessing in our lives? Do we believe that? Are Jesus in his words his life, his death, his resurrection, his commands that he gives to us, and the prospect of spending eternity in intimate fellowship with him, are these things beautiful enough for us to see that we're willing to lay down our lives and follow his commands? Because if not, we'll simply see his commands as oppressive, stifling, and dutiful. But may we, along with the psalmist, say in Psalm 16, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for me, for surely I have a delightful inheritance. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. You know that we are prone to wonder. We are prone to doubt your goodness, even in the law that you have given to us. We thank you that Jesus has come and fulfilled the law perfectly, fulfilling the requirement that you have, but yet, bestowing his righteousness upon us so that we can freely live and obey him. Father, would you empower us by your spirit to believe that you are a good and loving father and that you want us to follow your lead so that we might enjoy life in the way you intended it. And Lord, when we fail and when we try to go our own direction, would we come before you in humble repentance, knowing that you're the God who forgives and the God of second, third, and fifth chances. Thank you for your grace that you bestowed upon us in Christ. May we rest in his finished work and may we live in the freedom that you've purchased. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.